Welcome, my true crime roadies. I'm your host, Angela Baum, along with my husband, Larry, and this is Trucking True Crime Podcast, a true crime show where we focus on true crime stories that happen within the trucking industry. But don't worry, you don't need to know anything about the trucking industry to listen and enjoy the show. You just need to be a fan of true crime. And if that's you, then welcome inside. As a reminder, if you'd like to learn more about our life over the road as team truck drivers, you can listen to our other podcast, Married to the Road, where we share our lives over the road and stories along the way with our three furry dogs. As a reminder, our podcast discusses true crimes and murders. This is not a show for the faint of heart, and this is not intended for young audiences. Have you ever been interested about what all it takes to be a truck driver out here, delivering the goods all across America? Or more importantly, what is it like being a team trucker out here with your significant other 24 hours a day in a small confined space, working together, eating together, sleeping together, you name it. If you've ever been curious about the trucking industry, please listen to Larry and I's other podcast, Married to the Road. Again, that's married, the number two, the road. Please be sure to give it a listen today and don't forget to hit that follow button. Welcome back home on Trekking True Crime Roadies. I am so glad to have you back here on Trekking True Crime Podcast. Today we've got a two-part episode for you and I'm so sorry that it's two parts, but you'll understand there were so many twists and turns to the story and so much information. We'll have the second part out for you this Saturday. But let's get into our show. So how does a father of three suddenly decide that he wants to live his life as a serial killer? Today's story is about a long-haul truck driver who for 15 years was a good provider and a father to his three children, but secretly he had longing to become a serial killer. It was an urge that had been burning inside of him since he was a young child. And finally, after 15 years of marriage, He decided that he wanted a divorce and to finally fulfill his dream. But to understand how we get to this point, we need to go back and find out exactly who made Keith Hunter Jesperson became who he is. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born April 6, 1955. He was one of five children to his parents, Les and Gladys. He was born in British Columbia, where he lived until his early childhood. That's when he moved with his family to the state of Washington to give them a chance to start over. Keith did not have an easy child growing up. His father, Les, was an alcoholic, and his mother, Gladys, was said to have absolutely no compassion or remorse for any of her children. Gladys, from everything that I could find out, came across to her children as very cold, showing very to little no emotion. I feel personally that a lot of this was due to the abuse that she suffered at the hands of Les. Les was also not an affectionate man. As a matter of fact, he despised women and he treated them poorly. He also wanted his sons to do the same and treat women the same way. Les was very verbally and mentally abusive to all of his children. At one point during Keith's younger years, as part of his punishment, He shocked Keith with a cattle prod. This was supposed to teach him a lesson. 
Les was also known to hit all the kids with any object that was closest to him. In his teen years, Les began charging all of his kids room and boards to teach them the value of money. Even though Heath's siblings were never charged for room and board, Heath was always charged. Growing up during his school years, Keith's own brothers would make fun of him. They made fun of him due to his large size and stature. They used to call him Ig Igor or Ig as short. He was so picked on and was picked on so often that you would often see him playing by himself out on the playground. From all accounts, it seemed that in their family, Keith was often singled out and was the target of his father's rage and abuse. Due to this, we start to see Keith really starting to act out in his younger years. Keith began to torture animals, which as many of you know is a common thing that serial killers tend to do in their childhood. Keith would go from nailing crows to boards, to smashing badgers' heads, or to lighting cats on fire. Keith found immense satisfaction and pleasure in seeing small animals suffer. The worst thing in my opinion that Keith did as a child was that he would tie cats up by their tail to a wire that would hang across his backyard, just like an old laundry line. Then he would put up multiple cats and then sit there and watch as they began to claw each other to death to try and escape from being tied up on that wire. Now, Keith's torture did not stop with just animals. He soon began torturing other kids and people in a way to get out his rage. Now, Keith claims that the reason he did this was in retaliation for all the teasing that he received as a kid. He said that people made fun of him for his larger size and the fact that he was a very socially awkward kid. And he finally got to a point that he simply couldn't take it any longer and began taking out his anger on his bullies. Keith had a childhood friend named Martin. Martin was the kind of kid that was kind of an instigator amongst everybody. And each time that the two of them would get busted, Martin would always put the blame on Keith. Keith recalled several times that he would receive the belt and nothing would happen to Martin. Finally, one day, Keith just couldn't take it anymore and he lost his temper. He began beating Martin so bad that Keith's own father, Les, literally had to pull him off. As Keith was yelling, all he kept saying was that he wanted to kill Martin. One particular incident was when Keith was in a pond at around 10 years of age, when a boy decided to hold Keith's head underwater until he passed out. Horrified and mad, Keith went home to seek his revenge. Then he came back to the pool and decided that he was going to hold that same boy's head underwater in the public pool. The lifeguards at that pool had to peel Keith off the boy because he was screaming to everyone that he wanted to kill that little boy. When Keith was eight years old, his dad, Les, decided that he wanted to get Keith a BB gun, which for many boys is a rite of passage when they become young men. But Keith decided one day that he was going to shoot a little, a little neighbor boy in the genitals with his BB gun. The little boy was injured so severely that he had to be taken to the ER. That very same afternoon, another neighbor was in her garden picking raspberries, and Keith decided that he was going to shoot her in the butt. Needless to say, the BB gun only lasted 24 hours in his household before his father, Les, decided to take it away from him. In the seventh grade, Keith was the first introduced to shoplifting from a friend named Tom Hager. 
the two of them got busted for trying to steal some snacks at a local gas station. At the age of 14 years old, Keith claims that he lost his virginity. He claims that he lost his virginity in an act of rape. However, he never really went into great details of whom or where or what happened. During his teen years, he was a very shy, shy boy. He was very withdrawn from his classmates. He never attended any school functions like a school dance or prom or any of the after-school activities. Once Keith did graduate from high school, he didn't even attend college because his father Les told Keith that he was simply not smart enough and that his father didn't want to waste the time or money by putting Keith through college. At the age of 20, Keith finally got into his very first serious relationship. It was with a girl named Rose. Shortly after they began dating, she found out that she was pregnant with his child. Wanting his father's approval, he decided that he was going to go ahead and marry Rose. However, on the day of their wedding, Rose actually found Keith making out with one of her bridesmaids right before the wedding. Keith was able to apologize to Rose for his indiscretions and eventually wound up winning Rose over. They did go on with the wedding. Over the next few years, Rose and Keith had a total of three children. Rose was a stay-at-home mom who raised their three children, and by all outward appearances, they seemed to have a pretty normal home life. Keith became a long-haul truck driver to simply pay the bills and be able to support his family. Keith was gone oftentimes for weeks at a time. In interviews that I found from Keith's daughter, Melissa, she said that for all intents and purposes, he really was a wonderful provider for the family, but that was about it. When it came to how he treated his wife, Rose, he was a very demeaning person, just like his father before him. In Melissa's podcast, she did called Life After the Happy Face. She describes how her father had a sexual notation about him. She can remember once when they went out to dinner, he would always be very sexually suggestive to the waitresses right in front of her. He would bring up very inappropriate things to her as a young child as well that she felt that she had no business in hearing. It was like he simply had no filter around his kids. He loved to try to get a rile out of them by being sexually suggestive. On his 13th wedding anniversary to his wife Rose, Keith came home and told her that he wanted a divorce. Not only did he tell her that he wanted a divorce, but he also told her that he wanted her and the kids to move out of their house. In an interview with Keith Jesserbin in 2021, he went on to tell a reporter that he wasn't getting sex at home. He claimed that his wife Rose wanted nothing to do with him, and this fueled his reason for wanting to leave the family. With no place to go and being completely blindsided by his decision, Rose took her kids to her parents' house, where they lived over the next several years in her basement, with the kids sleeping on cots in the corner. Things were so difficult over the next few years as they dealt with going from a loving home with the father who provided them to being broke and living in their grandparents' basement. From everything I read, it seemed that during this time in Keith's life, he had what many would consider a complete midlife crisis, where he wanted to finally act on his desires to become a serial killer. And to do this, he needed to leave his old life in the past so that he could start a new life. Keith wound up getting a small apartment to stay out when he was not driving over the road as a truck driver. 
Keith's very first victim was a very young girl, 23-year-old Tanya Bennett. He met Tanya at a pool hall near Portland, Oregon on January 21, 1990. The two of them began to play a few rounds of pool, shared a few beers, and really started to hit it off. Before too long, Keith invited Tanya back to his apartment. Keith began putting the moves on Tanya, but she got upset and said that she didn't want to have sex with him. This led Keith into a blind rage. This is where he raped and strangled her. Then he unleashed his rage on her by beating her face so severely that when the police found the crime scene, they found her teeth in several areas of his apartment. After he had killed Tanya, he decided that he was going to dump her body in Oregon along a gorge that was located next to the old Columbia River Highway. And her body was found the very next day on January 22, 1990. When the police found her, they said that her body was so badly beaten, she was also strangled and had been sexually assaulted. On February 5, 1990, the police received an anonymous phone call from a woman saying that she had been in a bar having drinks with a few friends. She was just trying to relax and unwind with a couple of her friends. When over her shoulder at the table next to her, she heard a familiar voice as she knew. She said that he was bragging to the other people at the table, telling them how he had just killed a woman. The man the caller accused of bragging at the bar was named John Sonoski. Police tried to investigate these claims, but unfortunately, the name that was written down was misspelled, and the police were not able to do any further investigation because they could not find this person. The very next week, the police received another anonymous call. This time, the caller spelled the name of the gentleman. When the police ran a criminal background check on John, they saw that he had had several DUI convictions, but nothing violent in his past. Wanting to learn more about John, they reached out to his parole officer to learn more about his character. After speaking with his parole officer, they were able to determine that the anonymous caller was actually John's girlfriend, Laverne. The police went and brought them both down, Laverne and her boyfriend, John, to try to interview them to get to the bottom of this. Not getting enough information to go forward, they sent Laverne home wearing a wire in hopes that maybe she could get a confession on tape of John admitting to the murder of Tanya Bennett. For several days, Laverne tried, but she simply could not get John to implicate himself in the murders. The police brought Laverne back into the station, where she said that on the night of January 21, 1990, she had received a phone call from John saying that he was in a lot of trouble and that he needed her to come pick him up. He was at a local truck stop in Troutdale. Supposedly, when Laverne arrived, John was hiding between two semi-truck trailers, and on the bottom was Tanya's body, which was wrapped in a blanket. Laverne claimed at first that she thought that maybe Tanya was just sick, but that John confirmed that, in fact, she was dead. She claimed at this point that the two of them wrapped her body into a shower curtain, went and drove 20 miles along the side of a highway, and dumped her off at the old Columbia River Highway Gorge. Laverne also told police that before they left, that John had cut a piece of Tanya's jeans to keep as a souvenir. The police had Laverne take, him, take them to the truck stop 
to show them exactly where John was when she got to the truck stop. They also had Laverne take them to the location where they found Tanya Bennett's body. They had her describe the crime scene to them and exactly what had happened. Laverne went into great detail. After this confession, they immediately went and arrested John. While trying to piece together the evidence, they realized that Laverne's story just was not making sense to them. They had several witnesses saying that Tanya was actually at a different bar than when Laverne had told officers. Along with having the other people saying that they had seen Tanya at a different bar, police also tried to find any forensic evidence inside of Laverne's car showing that Tanya's body had been inside of her car like she had claimed. So then when the police confronted her with this information, Laverne wound up changing her story. Now she said that Tanya was actually alive and well when she went to the truck stop to pick up John and that John and Tanya were got into the car and everything was well and Tanya was fine. They then drove Tanya towards her mom's house, claiming that they were going to take her home, claiming that Tanya said that she needed to get home to be with her mom. Along the way, they stopped at a rest area where Laverne claims that she helped hold down Tanya with a rope around her neck as John beat, raped, and then killed her right there in the rest area. Then the two of them disposed of her body. The police immediately arrested Laverne for her part in the murder of Tanya Bennett. And in January of 1994, 1991, Laverne went on trial for the murder of Tanya Bennett. During the trial, the prosecutor said that they had found graffiti in that same rest area on a bathroom stall door that said, I killed Tanya Bennett. I'm going to get away with it. So they used this evidence to try to tie John and Laverne to the murder of Tanya Bennett. And also to confirm Laverne's new version of the story that she was telling. But during the trial, Laverne claimed that she had actually lied about everything. That she had made up the entire story. That she was actually just wanting to leave a very abusive 10-year relationship that she had had with John. So she made up the story and the story simply just snowballed from there. On January 31st, 1991, Laverne was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. John went to trial afterwards and he wound up pleading no contest. Pleading no contest means that, he, that John believed that there was enough evidence to convict him of the murder, but he did not want to admit guilt. He also did this to help him to avoid the death penalty. He also was sentenced to life in prison. Obviously, we know that these two did not kill Tanya Bennett, as it was Keith Jesperson that did. But sadly, due to her lie, both John and Laverne would go on to serve six years in prison for a crime that neither one of them committed. I told you that this case of Keith Jesperson had so many twists and turns. So many, in fact, that we're going to have to continue this case for next week's show. Be sure to come back this Saturday for part two of the Keith Jesperson case. And as always, be safe out there. And thank you so much for listening to Trekking True Crime Podcast. If you like your podcast ad-free, then head over to our Patreon, located at patreon.com slash Podcast, where for just a dollar a whole month, your episodes are ad-free. 
And if you need more episodes in your life, then for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode each month. All your episodes are ad-free and you get a 10% discount on all of our Trekking True Crime podcast merchandise. Plus, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all of our episodes ad-free. So please be sure to stop by our Patreon at patreon.com slash trekking true crime podcast and sign up today. Thank you so much, my true crime roadies, for giving our podcast a listen. We really appreciate you listening to our Trekking True Crime podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to visit our Instagram page or our TikTok page, also Trekking True Crime podcast. And don't forget that you can visit our Facebook page as well. Again, Trekking True Crime podcast. Be sure to like, share, and follow, and be sure to share out our podcast to all your friends. We'll be back here next week with another great episode. Thank you so much, my true crime roadies. Be safe out there. Music